What is going on, people? Good to see you this morning. Can I tell you what I love about Cindy Potter? Well, I, there's not just one thing. There's like 50 things I love about Cindy Potter. But one of the things, she's so hip, she's so cool, she's so with the times. She knows it's called the web hoo-ha. That's... <laughs> Because that's what all the youth are calling it now. I, you didn't even know that. That's, that's the new trendy word. So check out our web hoo-ha, www.myredemptionchurch.org. That'll be fantastic. So uh, we got a lot to accomplish this morning. So we're going to get right to business. Go ahead and pray with me and we'll get underway. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word when it encourages us. I thank you for your word when it sometimes scolds us. I thank you for your word when it reminds us of who we are in you and that that gives us courage and hope and joy. And I thank you for your word when it reminds us of what we are to do in a world that sometimes is opposed to you and to your truth. And I pray that today as we learn what it means to navigate as uh, faithful believers in a world that is not welcoming of your good news, um, that we will embrace what it calls us to, that we will embrace the servanthood to the world, that we would be those who see the big picture and live for eternity and honor our calling that you've given to us and that we will realize our citizenship is not of this world and then from that we can minister to this world with an eternal hope. And so I pray that you would instruct us in those things today and so show us and shape us by your truth. We ask these things in your good name. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 11 this morning. That's where we're going to be at. Now, um, I have been in Washington State for about 25 years, but I grew up in uh, Arizona. I grew up in a small town in central Arizona called Sedona. And uh, I've shared that before, and every time I share that, afterwards people come up to me and they go, ah, oh, that explains a lot about you. And... And I, I, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm not new age, man. How does that explain you? But, but it's a very new age town, and, and it's a very beautiful town, and, and it's not very big. I mean, I think when I was growing up there, there was probably south of 10,000 people that lived in Sedona, and yet every year, hundreds of thousands, perhaps over a million people would come to Sedona because, again, it was very touristy, it's very beautiful, that kind of thing. And, and so growing up there, um, I experienced not so much a cross-cultural life like we do here in the greater Seattle area where you work and live alongside people in different cultures. We just had different cultures come in for a day, right, and then leave. And so for me, that was my reference point of the foreigner, Right, and, and, and so uh, it would be these big buses that would pull over to the side of the road and like 60 Germans would kind of come off the bus and they did things that you shouldn't do apparel-wise in Arizona, you know, and you would just kind of like, wow, they dress weird, you know, and, and this was before cell phones. We all mocked that everybody has a cell phone in their hands today hanging out, but in my town, everybody had a camera around their neck that would pour off these buses and they'd be just taking pictures of all the red rocks and all of this. And so growing up in that, we sort of, we didn't like the tourists. They slowed down the traffic. They were always stopping in the middle of the road to take a picture of Bell Rock or whatever else. And so we sort of had this negative view of the foreigner, you know, because they were just different and they were odd and they were strange and they didn't do things like we did them. And we used to get our own cameras and we would pull over to the side of the road when a bus would be there and we would just take pictures of the tourists to 
to just let them know what it felt like, you know? And, and it was just this thing, right? And, and, and I realized that when you're dealing with a foreigner, they are just different than you. They see the world different. They function different. They understand dynamics different. And they're definitely a fish out of water. If you travel to another country, you're going to be a foreigner. And you're going to be a little bit out of sync with the way things normally are for them. Now, I share that because that is the essence of our existence as Christians in this world. When Jesus erupted into our lives, and we were, in essence, as Paul says, crucified with Christ, and our old person died, and a new person was brought forth in us by which the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers and enables to a new calling, we became foreigners in this world. We are now an outsider inside it. Our citizenship is now eternal. Our home is in heaven. This place we're just passing through. We're tenters. We're hitchhikers through this life. And therefore, we are learning what that means. We're trying to understand, okay, then how do I live as this now newly incorporated foreigner? What does that look like for my life? How do I live otherworldly in this world? Well, that's Peter's heart. Matter of fact, I would say this drives most of his letter. He's trying to help his readers that are dispersed through many different communities understand how to live distinctly Christian in a non-Christian environment. He says, uh, you're countercultural. You're not anti-cultural, by the way. I want us to understand that countercultural doesn't mean anti-cultural. But it means counter to. You're bringing something different to bear on the environment as an outsider seeking to make an impact on the inside. And so that's Peter's heart in our text this morning. And over the next few weeks, that's going to be his heart. In fact, he's going to become very practical at this point. Not pragmatic. Practical. See, pragmatic is the end justifies the means. That's not Peter. Peter's practical based on principle. So he says, here's some principles. Uh, we're foreigners, we're exiles, we're strangers in this world, but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, and we're called to be holy and called to be different, have an eternal perspective, and based on that, here's some practical things you should do in relationship to culture, to government, to labor, to marriage, to church, right? To just outsiders in general. He's going to give a list of things over the next few weeks that we're going to look at that are practical in living out our Christian identity in a world that has a different identity. So starting in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, he opens up with a very simple word. He says, beloved. And I believe this is a strategic placement of this word. I mean, if you think about this, he, he's already been talking about how living Christian in this world is challenging. He's going to start to outline some things that as you do these, it's going to be hard. You're going to face some pressure. You're going to be discouraged at times, and you're going to wonder, why did God call me to this? And then probably underlying some of that's going to be, does God really love me if he calls me to this? And therefore, Peter's going to say eight times in this book, beloved, beloved, beloved. Don't forget you're loved. Don't forget you're a child of God. Don't forget that he has totally taken ownership of you, spilling the precious blood of Christ to rescue you. You're beloved. Even though sometimes you may not feel like that. It's a little bit like raising kids and you have them do a chore or a task that they don't want to do. And so what do you say? Hey, love you, buddy. Right? 
They're like, oh, whatever, you don't love me. You're going to pull 10,000 weeds. You know, I'm like, no, love you, buddy. Go pull those weeds. Love you, though. Love you. Right? So it's, it's that. That's what Peter is doing. And he's reminding us that God's saying, I love you. Yes, it's going to be hard. I love you. And yes, I'm going to expect some things of you. But I also love you so much I've empowered you to be able to do these things. And so he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles, reminding us who we are, where we're from, how we're different. This is just, again, passing through. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, I love how Peter starts us off right here um, because um, he's getting at part of where our strength lies as believers. Right? Because what we, in essence, do within our world is we make a testimony that says, Jesus has come into my life. Jesus has changed my person, and now I'm different. The code of this book becomes the code of my life. The identity of Christ becomes the identity of my person, and from that, I want to honor him and worship him and obey him and glorify him and, and follow in his stead. And, and when we say that, that means we need to also back that up by doing that. And so Peter knows part of our effectiveness as a witness in this world is going to be predicated on how we live. And we talked about this last week where we said one of the things our world tags so quickly in the lives of Christians is they tag this idea of whether we're hypocritical or not. Because what we're saying is we believe a biblical code. They go, great, if you believe a biblical code, you actually follow through on that which you believe. And they're always measuring, and, and Peter knows this. So he says, here's what you need to do. I know it's tempting. I know it's hard. But abstain from the passions of your flesh. Right? One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. It's the last one in the list in Galatians chapter 5. And, and as Paul gives this whole list, he's saying one of the things the Spirit gives us is the capacity to say no to these desires that we have, these fleshly things that just kind of erupt. That doesn't mean we don't have temptations, and I'm certainly not saying that there aren't times that we don't fall and fail and blow it. But uh, the reminder is we have something different, and we're called to something different. And we need to labor prayerfully, thoughtfully, intentionally to not be given over to our passions that so easily emerge, these feelings that crop up and grab a hold of us and want to take us in directions that undermine our credibility and undermine our character. He says, stand against that. Wage war against that. Abstain is this constant sense of vigilance and pressure against the desire to just go with what we feel. And I'll, I'll be honest, I think as Christians in our particular generation, this is hard because we live in, a, in an environment that, that feeds us very much in the emotional, right? Movies and music and television uh, are all designed to invoke a lot of feeling. And, and, and news and, and media outlets that channel information want to invoke our passions, our anger, our frustration, our whatever it is, right? Just a sense of edginess or, yeah, you tell them. I mean, it, it all caters to the sense of being dislodged from our thinking and more rooted in our feeling. And Peter knows this danger. Jesus knows this danger as well. And so they're driving us back to just don't, don't let your life be driven by these fleshly impulses. Either the impulse of lustfulness or the impulse of 
anger or bitterness or resentment or chasing trying to become happy more than trying to be biblically joyful. Right? He says, you, you need to be driven by something deeper, not something so base. And so he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Why? He says, these war against your soul. See, I, I think this is important because sometimes we, we don't realize that what's really going on when we give in to all those different types of passions, like I said, whether it be anger or bitterness or trying to be happy apart from biblical joy uh, or you know, whatever your list is, when we engage in those things, when we give over to the lusts of our flesh, whatever those are, they erode deeper character things in us. Right? So they erode things like contentment. They erode courage and confidence and peace. If anything, it begins to even erode faith because now we focus more on how we feel than the promises that God has made. We doubt God's sovereignty or we doubt God's control or we doubt God's promises because we say, I don't feel like those promises are true. I'm worried about this thing. I'm fearful about that thing. And so we start to get like Peter out on the water. We're starting to look at the waves and we feel the wind instead of looking at our Lord. And so now we're more consumed with our passions that wage war with our soul and do damage to our soul than looking at our Lord that gives confidence and stability and courage to our soul. And so Peter opens up not by saying, here's how you deal with culture, condemn culture. He opens up by saying, here's how we deal with culture. We have to transcend the environment of that culture. We have to be what I like to call gospel-centered unique. Because that's what the world's really wanting to see. They're wanting to see a uniqueness in our faith where they can look and they can say, it must be real. Because they're legitimately different and they're consistently different. Again, they, they transcend the problems of this life. They transcend the fears of this life. They transcend the agony of this life. They transcend the sense of we control our own destiny. They transcend all of it. They seem to live otherworldly. And again, that comes back to living in such a way that the fruit and the proof of the gospel of Jesus changing us is clearly evident. And see, that's Peter's pastoral heart in this whole section. And so he says, listen, you, this is going to be hard to do. It's going to be hard, right? And I don't just mean for the, the, the passions that are self-seeking or self-interested for us, such as maybe things of sexuality or greed or whatever else, but it's also going to be hard because uh, what Peter's now going to begin to ask us to do is to live in a context, in an environment that, again, is not always receptive to what we believe. And in that, he's going to say, don't give over to your, your lusts. Don't give over to your passions. When you feel opposed, don't give into the passion to oppose. When you feel hated, don't give into the passion to hate. When you feel mocked, don't give into the passion to mock. Don't fight the fire with the fire. Right, this is where he's going to go. And he's going to be pulling from Jesus as he goes through this. And so he opens up by saying, man, you're an exile, you're a sojourner, you're an outsider, embrace that. You're different, embrace that. And so abstain from the passions of the flesh, don't let them war against your soul. Rather, he says in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, 
So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the first thing I would say to this is what I just said. This is about gospel-centered uniqueness. It's saying Jesus is so infiltrated and saturated my life that I live by his principles, I live by his code, because he lives in my life. It's not just orthodoxy, it's intimacy that is rooted in part with orthodoxy, but it's much more than that. So he says, because this is true, man, keep your conduct honorable among those who are on the outside. Now, now here's what is also true about this. Um, when we choose to live distinctly Christian, right? So when we're, we're open, we're upfront, we're honest about it, um, there, there, there's going to be two reactions, right? For some, they're, they're going to see us, and, and there's going to be praise, right? It's going to be fellow Christians or whatever else, and they're going to say, thank you for, for actually really living it and doing it. That's going to be there. But for others, there's just going to be slander, and that slander is going to come merely because you follow Jesus. It doesn't matter how nice you are or how abrupt or hostile you are. There's just going to be this truth that when you really live according to the heart and principles of Christ, that is a light in dark places. And there's going to be some, that no matter what you do, just because you live for Jesus, no matter what you do, there's going to be criticism. Right? They're going to say evil things against you, or they're going to say bad things. They're going to undermine you. They're going to mock you. They're going to look at every one of your moves as suspicious, right? I, I think about this just last summer. Um, uh, our, our church is, is a part of Duval Days. We, we partner uh, with Jeff Wolf and his fitness business and do this great big thing in, in downtown for Duval Days and all this jumpy stuff and toys and everything else. And so we did this last year, and I'm thinking, man, what a great event, and then that afternoon, somebody who doesn't go to redemption sent me a message, and they said, um, what did your t-shirt say D down at Duval Days when you guys were running all the equipment? And I said, well, it just said Redemption Church, and on the back it says, uh, for the glory of God, by the grace of God, for the good of our city. I said, why? I said, well, there's this big discussion on Facebook right now about how offensive your church was and how offensive your shirts were. I said, really? And then they said, yes, it's STUPID, in all caps. Right? And, 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 there was, and so they sent me, forwarded me some of what the dialogue was, and it was just how we were slimy as a church, and can you believe that they were down there doing this and wearing their shirts so blatantly? And, and you're just like, we provided jumpy toys for kids, you know? Like, like you know, I, like, but, but then it comes back to there are some that are already front-loaded. They've had a bad taste. They've had a bad experience. They've run into bad things whatever it is, they maybe run into a uh, very legalistic type or harsh Christians. I don't know what, but from that, they're already loaded. So when they see church or God or glory, it's instantly, oh, this is bad or this is slimy, and they're going to say some negative thing just because you're trying to live it out. Again, doesn't even mean you're doing anything hostile or like contrary, like trying to be opposing of them, just living as light in dark places is going to earn some slander. And yet in this, we're supposed to still live pure, to live our convictions, to live our character, right? And I find in life when we do this, it does just sometimes make people uncomfortable. I mean, you know, I even think about like, 
uh, there's been seasons where, and I've, I've shared this before, where I'll be on a flight or I'll travel someplace and having a normal conversation with somebody until they ask me what I do, right? And, and I, I'm getting to the point where I want to say, I'm just in leadership development. That would make it a whole lot, you know, that'd make it a lot easier. You know what I mean? And, and that kind of thing, I'm a pastor and like, oh, oh, I'm sorry about all those cuss words, you know? I'm like, you know, and then they get all kind of bottled up. You know, and, and you can just feel kind of the tightness. Like, just as soon as they say I'm a pastor, like, somehow they feel like I've judged them when I, I didn't do anything. Next time I'd be like, yeah, man, potty mouth. No, I, um, <laughs> thank you. You know, no, not going to do that, right? But, but it, it's that kind of thing that happens, right? But here's what I would also say based on this text right here. It doesn't really matter what they say. And, and this will be a hard one for us because we begin to take personal offense. You turn on the news, and if you go to MSNBC, you're going to hear things about these evangelicals and these Christians and these right-wingers and these haters. And if you turn on, like, CNN, it's splitting the difference, and you turn on Fox, and we're just heroes. And, you know, like, like right? You know, and, and, and all, all are skewed. All are skewed. But, but, but I, I, I look at that, and I go... It, it doesn't really matter what they say. Now, again, we're going to sometimes take personal offense. We're going to get frustrated, and we're going to want to kind of clench our fists. And yet Peter says, who cares what they say? Who cares what they say? Notice what he says here, right? He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles as honorable. Even when they say stuff about you, even when they mischaracterize you and they stereotype you and they shape you into a mold that you don't actually fit, when they call you a hater and they call you regressive and they call you any other number of things, what's he say? He says, keep your conduct honorable. Why? Because it doesn't matter what they say, it matters what they see. See that? I want you to think on that. Who cares what they say? He says, they're going to say you're an evildoer. You oppose a lot of things. That's okay. What's key is that they see your good works. They see your good deeds, and they glorify God on the day of visitation. They may not glorify God today, or tomorrow, or this year, or next year, or a decade. But there will be a time where God visits a person that has opposed you. And he's going to visit them personally. He's going to visit them intimately. He's going to visit them in a way that is saving to their soul. And part of why that belief is going to happen is because they're going to say, I remember this friend of mine who was unflappable when I was just degrading them and mocking them and teasing them and undermining them. They didn't get shaken. They didn't retaliate against my words. Not in a way that was hostile or cruel or unloving. Rather, they stayed the course of being seeable. Seeable. This is why I'm saying, who cares what they say? I think too often we care what they say. Right? I, I, I watch enough media to know that sometimes we care more about what they say than what they see. And Peter is upending that. He says, no, 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 it's, it's what they see. 
we got to help them see. We need to disrupt the stereotypes. We need to not be tacky. We need to be Teflon. Right? Tacky says, I'm letting your insult stick to me. I'm letting your bias stick to me. I'm letting your stereotypes stick to me. I'm, I'm letting your words stick to me. And now I'm going to start stereotyping you as ignorant, foolish, judgmental, hypocritical. We'll start using the same words they use. Same critiques. Oh, you think I'm a hypocrite? You're a hypocrite. You think I'm intolerant? There's nothing like the intolerance of tolerance. Hypocrites, right? I mean, this is, right? We say it. I've said it. I, I feel my salsa level creep up. When I, when I just read articles, right? It's what makes me want to go, like, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm, I'm going to throw down. You want to throw down? I'm going to throw down. Right? That's our temptation. And this is exactly what Peter's getting at. He says, don't, don't do that. Because the real key in all of this is us maintaining a heart and a desire that says, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be merciful when others are merciless. I'm going to be relational when people say, we don't even want to relate to you. Right? That, that's countercultural. I'm going to be thoughtful when you're thoughtless. I want to be helpful when you think uh, you don't need my help. Right? That's how we go out of the way. Paul has this great little section in Romans chapter 12, and he talks about, uh, you know, th there are going to be people that do evil or bad to Christians. And he says, man, don't, don't fight evil with evil. He says something very revolutionary. He says, overcome evil with good. And what, what he's saying there is, uh, earlier he says, it's not your job to, to, to play the role of vengeance. Well, we're not called to be persecutors. We're called to be the persecuted. We're called to show something different where the world forces and belittles and mocks to, so people feel guilted into uh, embracing their position. Uh, we, we do it different. And we, we show generosity and benevolence and grace. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have beliefs and convictions. We do. But I think even in communicating the beliefs and convictions, we're doing so much in such a way that it should ooze grace. Right? Because that's different. Anybody can yell. Anybody can be sarcastic. Trust me, it's such a sin for me to deal with. It's so easy. It's right there. I don't even have to work at it. That's the worst part. Open. It just happens. Grace takes effort on my part. Mercy, I have to think through. See, I, I can be a whip tongue, right? So I have to really think about what Peter is expecting. And it's not easy, but it's still the way forward. Because again, we're not called to win. I say this often. We're not called to win. We're called to win over. We're not called to win. Here's the other part. We've already won. And because we've already won, we win over. We don't try to keep winning. Right? This is clearly Paul's agenda, clearly Peter's agenda. I would say clearly Christ's agenda. And so he outlines this and says, all right, this is what you got to do. Say no to your passions. They're going to wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak evil against you, they see something different. Because sometimes when they speak evil, they're trying to goad us into proving their point. 
right? See if they can spark anger, spark bitterness, spark frustration, spark opposition, spark the desire to not preach the gospel, but preach everything else but the gospel. Preach our morality and preach our ethics and preach our positions and preach our condemnation as opposed to the one thing that changes everything, right? So they're going to try to goad us. So Peter says, no, 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 nah. let them see your good deeds. And then he says something that, ooh, this sits like a stone. Verse 13 says, here's the first way you can do this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Really, Peter, you're a jerk, all right? Like, and, and here's why. I, I don't think we can fully appreciate this dynamic. So um, Peter is a part of the greater Roman Empire. Doesn't seem that he has citizenship that we're aware of, at least. Um, so he doesn't have the same rights as his uh, friend Paul, who was a Roman citizen. So he's not protected by laws in the same way. And he is writing both in relationship to a system and to a leader of that system. The Roman system is a very unique type system. So um, you had the Babylonians who really kind of advanced the idea of laws, laws that even the king himself was subject to. And we saw that in the book of Esther. The king couldn't override his own laws. You just had to have another law to deal with that law. Sounds like us. All right, so why, why only have one law when you can have 15, you know? So, um, so that, that was kind of the Persian Babylonian system, and the Romans adopted that. Right? And then they expanded it by becoming a republic. And so they said, all right, we're going to have the landowners play as the Senate, and you know, we're going to have this kind of certain type of power structure, but law is going to be important. So law was important in the Roman Empire. Knowledge was also important in the Roman Empire because they imported it from the Greeks, philosophy and knowledge. So they kind of had law and they had knowledge, but their whole heart was also glory, right? And they wanted glory. And so you had this weird amalgamation within the Roman culture where there were laws and there was knowledge, but there was also a lot of passion and a lot of emotionalism. A lot of everybody seeking his own. And because of that, there was a lot of mess. There was a lot of rampant sexual morality because everybody wanted their own passions. Um, lots of homosexuality, lots of infidelity, lots of pedophilia that was protected. Just nobody thought anything of it. That's the system they're in. Lots of slavery. Now, most people did not stay slaves their own lives. Many were eventually released or purchased their freedom because you would sell yourself into slavery more than you were just kind of kidnapped into slavery, different system. But a lot of slavery in this kind of organization as well, and a lot of corruption at the political level. A lot. The Senate was very corrupt, right? And so Peter lives in this time where there's laws, but laws don't apply to everybody. And even where the laws do apply, there's so much other underhandedness that people manipulate the system. Anytime you had a senator you didn't agree with, you just trumped him up on treason charges, and there was one or two ways to deal with it. We can kill you, or here's the knife. You can do it yourself. Right? There's a lot, a lot of suicide in the Roman Empire. So Peter's writing, and he says, all right, this is the system we're in. This is how I want you to relate to the system we're in. And he says, and moreover, then we have this emperor Nero. Very interesting guy. Nero becomes emperor in 56 AD. He's 17 years old. Right? So a young dude. All right? Sometimes we picture Nero as this older guy, right? Not an older guy, younger guy. He comes to the throne because his mother, whom, by the way, he had a sexual relationship with, so this gets warped quick, 
uh, he had this sexual relationship with his mother. His mother was married to the reigning emperor at the time, and she organizes his death. So she kills her own husband, which was the second time she did it, so she's a black widow, right? So um, she's killed a couple of husbands, but she does this so her son can ascend to the throne. And so Nero becomes the emperor at 17 years of age. Part of this is this weird, twisted Oedipus complex that he has with his mother, and so it makes it kind of a mess. But eventually he marries a woman that he doesn't like. And so he doesn't want to stay married to her anymore because he's interested in another woman, so he decides he's going to banish the first wife. And his mother gets in the way and says, you can't banish the first wife because I like her and I really don't like the second girl. And he says, all right, well, I'll bring her back from exile. He brings her back from exile. He kills his mother, and then he kills his first wife because you have to kill your mom before you kill your first wife so your mom doesn't disapprove of you killing your wife. So, um, right? so he does that, and then he marries a second woman. And she is pregnant with his child, and he decides at the last minute he doesn't want an heir yet, so he kicks his wife to death while she's pregnant. But then he feels guilty. Good for him. So he feels so guilty, he finds a young boy, and he castrates him, calls him his wife, and marries him. One of the first uh, Roman emperors to ever marry a male. Right? And he parades this young man as his wife. And then he decides he's going to marry another male to play the role of his husband because he's a very perverse guy. Right? So he does that. Now you're going, this guy's a dirtbag. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. I just won't bother you with the details. Right? So this is the emperor. Now, did the emperor do some good things? He certainly did. Nero was known for reducing taxes, making smaller government. Um, he made sure that to really look out for the middle class, the free men of his culture. In some ways, you could look and say he's kind of conservative, just twisted. Right? So he had some good. He certainly had some bad. But everybody knows. The, the, matter of fact, his, his male wife was openly paraded in the Roman Empire. So this isn't some kind of closet, secret, anything like that. Uh, this is just the kind of guy that he was. And it's in that system now, and I, I say that so we have perspective. It's in that system that Peter is saying, be subject to every institution. And it is that emperor that he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors, sent by him who punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, I would add that it is the system that killed Jesus, that killed Peter, and that killed Paul. I would also add that it is this emperor who killed Peter and killed Paul. Right? So I'm painting the picture so that when we're tempted to say, well, yeah, you know, Rome was messed up and Nero was crazy, but you don't know what it's like today. So you're right. You don't know what it's like. You certainly don't know what it's like, because now it's easy. We have transitions of government. Last time I checked, I don't know of a president that kicked his pregnant wife to death and killed his mother. I've not. Maybe I missed those years. Um, it doesn't, doesn't happen that way. It's much more controlled. But it's there that Peter is asking this hard thing. He says, this is what I want you to do. Right? And, and, and part of this is, is understanding. It's not the, the, the practical, or not the pragmatics of government. He's not defending Nero. He's not defending Rome. He's giving us a strategy, and part of that strategy is predicated on a more transcendent truth. And the transcendent truth is no matter who's on an earthly throne, God is on a higher throne. Always. And it's not that God is on a higher throne distant from the lower throne. It doesn't work that way. In fact, I'm going to quote three guys. Jesus 
Peter, and we've already quoted, or uh, Paul, Jesus, and we've already quoted Peter here. Um, Jesus, in John chapter 19, he's facing his trial before Pilate. And Pilate asks him a question, and Jesus doesn't answer the question. In verse 10, Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And then Jesus answered and said to him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Right? Sometimes I I get concerned when we talk about politics or government or culture that we treat it as though God is on a distant throne, not tending to the affairs of whoever is on our thrones, media thrones, marketing thrones, fiscal thrones, political thrones, it doesn't matter the throne. Um, And Jesus says, you know what? You wouldn't have this authority unless it was given to you from above. You just wouldn't. This is Jesus. He says, God's, God's in control. Paul is more brazen in Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, starting at verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to governing authorities. And and this is where I want you to listen. It's not so much that line. It's what he says here. For there is no authority except from God. And he says, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Don't take away from these words. Paul is writing when Nero is king, is emperor, in a broken system, and Paul point blank says there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. I mean, these are really strong words. It's putting it in perspective for us. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. He says, would you have no fear of the one whom is in authority? He says, why then do good? And you are, why don't you do what is good and you will receive his approval? For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Notice how he keeps saying, God's servant, God's in authority, God's placed him there. I mean, God's sovereign. I don't understand the mysteries of it. But, but it's designed to give us encouragement again. Nothing's out of control, no matter how much we might feel that way. Therefore, he says in verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not to, avoid, or, uh, not to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says, Because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Right? So, strong words that are sharing with us how we interact, how we relate, how we posture ourselves in this, in this world. Now, again, I'm not saying it's easy. It's really hard. I'm not saying I don't share your frustrations. I do. I, I think this is one of the tougher lessons for us in our environment sometimes is to try to honor what's what's being said here. Because what it's saying is go out of your way to be a right person uh, or to do right things rather than just be right about the environment or the social conditions, right? Work hard to make a true difference and not just have a statement. Bless the cursed. Because that's really what we're talking about, right? Bless those who are cursed. They're cursed. 
the only hope they really have, and honestly, the only hope a culture has is people changed. That's it, right? We're, we're never going to elect our way to health. We're never going to vote our way to human stability. There will never be a utopia on this planet fashioned and formed by the wherewithal of people that come together, hold hands across America, and make it happy. Right? It won't happen. It won't happen unless hearts are radically transformed. Because somebody's always on the take. Somebody's always leveraging power for their good as opposed to the good of all. There's always going to be somebody that is so marred by their sin that it, it disrupts the system. Now, I know some of you are going to say, so you're saying don't be involved. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about how we're involved. I'm not saying we don't vote. I'm not saying you don't run for office. I'm not saying you don't plug into the system. What I'm saying is once we're there, as we're there, as we do it, people should be able to look at us and say, that person is consistent, that person is gracious, that person is merciful, that person is different. And even where we disagree, they disagree so compassionately. They disagree with true empathy. They disagree with relationship at the core of their disagreement. When that is true, that is gospel. And that is how we make a difference in our world, right? I would also add, according to this passage here, that it's not because Caesar's worthy or Rome's worthy. It's not because the president's worthy or the Senate or uh, the House is worthy or our governor is worthy. Or It's not that. Notice what it says there. For the Lord's sake, Jesus is worthy. If Jesus asks us to do something difficult, if Jesus asks us to deal with our emotional baggage and, and, and deal with it in such a way that we are generous as opposed to barbed, if Jesus asks us to do it, it is worth it. For the Lord's sake, right? And you say, well, what if, what if our culture, what if our politicians, whatever, ask us to sin? What if we have laws now that say you, you need to sin to obey the law? What do we do? Well, this isn't new to Christians by any stretch. In Acts chapter 5, Peter, the one writing this particular epistle that we're studying, is before a group of religious leaders in Jerusalem. And it says, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, right? So they bring the apostles in, put them before the religious council, and the high priest questioned them, and he said, we strictly charge you, right? So this is, this is legal. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Don't teach the name of Jesus anymore. It says, yet you have now filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you've intended to bring this man's blood upon us. And so, you know, you gotta, you, we told you to stop. Now we're charging you with a crime. You're preaching Jesus. And then Peter and the apostles answered. They said, we must obey God rather than men. What do you do when your culture says you must sin to obey the law? You don't sin. You don't sin. You say, this is what God calls me to, and I'm not going to sin. This is what you do. But then here's the other part of it. And you take the punishment. You don't sin, and you take the punishment, which is exactly what happens. They say, we can't honor that request. We can't stop preaching Jesus. 
So in verse 40, it says, when they had called the apostles back in, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then it says, and then every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, Jesus is the Christ. In other words, they say, we're going to break the law because we can't sin against God, and then we're going to take the punishment. That's it. That's what they do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about being persecuted. He says, when reviled, we bless. Just listen to these words. This is hard. I'm not doing well with this always. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. That's powerful. It becomes very hard to do this consistently. But it is, in a lot of ways, what makes us unique as Christians. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, he says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and they spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for they did the same things to the prophets, the fathers before them. I mean, this is our calling. See, I, I, I think what's hard sometimes for us is we feel the pinch right now, and we're, we're tempted to a lot of other emotions other than this one. Woo! Right? I, I, that's the last thing we're thinking. Uh, we don't watch what erupted in Indiana a few weeks ago, and we didn't say, yes! We didn't do that. We, we felt dejected and discouraged and frustrated and <laughs> typing away on Facebook and, you know, whatever, right? Like, all kinds of stuff that we feel. Because I think as Americans who, for a long time, have had a seat at the table, we, we've, um, we're not used to having the wind in our face and the wind at the back backs of those who see the world differently than us in this culture. We're not used to a majority now siding up on things that we say we can't go there. I mean, we want to love people. We want to care about people. We want to invest into people. But you can't ask us to throw out our values wholesale. So we feel this, this pinch and pressure, right? And yet, it's a privilege it's a privilege. And I think nothing speaks more to the, to the life-transforming power of Christ than to be able to look our world in the eye, to look it in the eye, and to honestly be able to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Right? We, 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 don't, we don't follow Peter and Paul. We follow Jesus, who was the perfect model of these things, who says, leap for joy. Consider it a blessing. Part of this means we just have to think eternal. Part of our challenge is we're so kind of ratcheted to this world, it's hard for us to believe that, man, if I face this with joy, if I see persecution as a blessing, uh, if, if I can be given high fives for opposition, like, awesome, man. They, yep, they're getting the gospel because they're not getting us. Man, if, if we can get there, that, that's huge, but it's, like I said, it's hard. So I go back with Peter, 
You go, but this is still what we're to do, right? This is why he says in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So this is how you leverage your freedom. This is what you do. You use your freedom for the sake of the gospel. You use your freedom for the sake of seeing others come to Christ. I mean, we are, we are the model of these things. So we leverage it in that way. And this is what God empowers, right? This is what God blesses, right? Where we have generous actions, or we're known for our integrity or our trustworthiness or our calmness or our joy, right? Our care. Those are the things the world's going to notice. Now, I want you to also pay attention to something that Peter says back in verse 15. Um, he, he's not saying that the people around us, um, he's, he, he identifies the problem. Maybe that's the way I put it. Um, he says there, we do this to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Maybe that'll bring you a little bit of, at least he's acknowledging they're ignorant and foolish people, um, right? No, Peter has no disagreement with that. He's going to say it about five times in the book, different things that says, yes, the world around us that opposes Christ, it's ignorant, it's foolish, it's broken. There's not a debate on that, right? So if you sit up here or you're sitting out there today and you're like, you know, Matt's getting on to us. Doesn't he understand the world around us? Yes, it's foolish. It's ignorant. It's sinful. It's broken. It's enslaved to its own desires and lusts and wants. Yes, I agree. Peter agrees. Jesus agrees to the problem. What we're dealing with is the best way to address the problem. See, one way is to make sure the foolishness and the ignorance knows it's foolish and ignorant. That's one way, right? So we, we get our, our megaphone of media and we let them know, you're sinful, you're broken, you're perverted, you're stupid. It's one way to do it. We oppose you. We don't want to connect with you, right? That, that's a way to do it. Uh, the other form is the one that Peter's advocating here. Uh, let them see your good deeds. Right? Be subject to until they ask you to sin and then joyfully receive your persecution. Look them in the eye and say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Trust the overarching power of God and the overarching eternal nature of our faith. See, it was interesting. Um, a couple weeks ago, just right before Easter, um, this was on my heart to some degree, so I had written an article on, on how historically uh, Christians had leveraged boycotts within our culture to get companies to not go directions that, that we morally opposed, and, and my thesis to that was to say, um, I think it did more damage than good to the gospel, right? Because it says, uh, unless you change your morality, we're not going to give you our money, Anytime we're using money as the leveraging rod toward morality, it kind of overrides really the gospel. The other part is, if you've ever been boycotted, you don't feel that those who boycott you like you much. Right? Honestly, I mean, I, I was watching the whole Indiana thing unfold, and I'm watching now Christians getting boycotted, and I, I, I'm like, as a Christian, I don't feel loved by the opposition at all. I feel very disliked, in fact. 
And, and so I, I kind of put myself in, oh, maybe that's how they felt 10 or 15 years ago when this would happen with them. Maybe, maybe and, and because their ethic is going to be a little bit different on retaliation, maybe this is more retaliatory now. The wind is at their back. They have the opportunity to teach some lessons. So I, I wrote this article on it, and strangely, sovereignly, mysteriously, um, one of the heads of the American Family Association read my article, who they organize a lot of boycotts. Not big fans of the article. Um, so, so they wrote a counter article to it, which was fascinating. The good news was, is they actually posted a link to my article on their website. I'm like, the very people I wanted to read it, it's publicized. All right, so, um, Paul went before Caesar. All right, so, um, right, so I'm like, this is a blessing. They're gonna read it. But, you know, I, I was reading, you know, kind of his thing, and, and he was very frustrated and, and uh, did not at all care for what I had written and kind of categorized our church. This was the nice thing. He called us a very young, successful church um, who doesn't preach sin or repentance. I'm like, I think you missed that one. Um, but thank you that you called us young. We'll take it. All right, so... Um, and, and so I'd responded, and he wouldn't post my response. So then we ended up in this email dialogue behind the scenes. And, and, and I said, listen, A, we do preach sin, and we do preach repentance, and we believe there's a hell, and we don't want anybody to go there. And, you know, like, you and I agree on the problem. We disagree on the way to confront the problem, right? Because the way you want to confront the problem is you just want to let the world know that it's violating the law. But the problem is to tell them they violate the law without the gospel just says, go to hell. Go to hell. Right? And, and, and that, that was the, the dilemma for me. I said, we can't keep communicating, uh, you know, these, these things where you say, just change your morality, but don't have Jesus change your condition. And so we never really agreed. And he thinks I'm a danger to things, and I think he's doing damage to things, which is fine. I, I don't mind differences of discussion, but again, it comes back to disagreeing on the solution. I think what's most important is that we communicate the gospel. So it's not about combating, and it's not about caving, right? It's about proclamation. It's about living differently, leveraging our freedom for these purposes. So then he sums up in verse 17. All right, living is free, not as a cover-up for evil, not for our own things, but living as servants of God, saying God's priority is my priority. His mission for me in this life is my mission in life. I'm going to do that. And so then he says in verse 17, here's four ways to do it. First of all, he says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. All right, this is very simplistic. And I want to be clear, because this word honor is going to come up twice in verse 17. Uh, this is the exact same word. This is not some different newfangled word. It's the exact same word that is used of honoring parents, honoring your spiritual gifts, um, honoring your body through sexual purity. It's used a number of times in the New Testament. Uh, so I don't want us to say, well, this honor is different than all the other honors, right? Because that's going to be the temptation. Well, oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't mean the same thing, right? Honestly, we're pulling a Clinton at that point. What's the definition of is? You know what I mean? Like, like honor's honor. That's what it means. Honor doesn't mean full endorsement. Honor does not mean I bow to your every whim. Honor doesn't mean I agree with you on everything, but honor means there is a clear tone that I honor you. I honor you. So he first says, honor everyone. I love what Jesus says back in Luke chapter 6 again. He says, but I say to you, right? This is what I want you to know. 
Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who, cur- who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Verse 31, as you would have others do to you, you do to them. Can I tell you what makes Christianity unique is this command right here. You're not going to find this in Islam. And you're not going to find this in naturalism. Nietzsche didn't say, oh, by the way, do good to your enemy. He didn't say that. It's like, cut their head off if you get the chance. Right? So, again, this is a unique ethic. To love your enemies, do good to those who are against you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you. Man, to do others as you would have them do unto you. That is how you can honor people. Next, he says, love the brotherhood. And I love this. In, in its original construction, it says, prove you love the brotherhood. Prove it. Because again, it's not what the world says, it's what it sees. And if the world looks at Christians and says, you guys can't even manage to love one another, how are you going to love your enemies? You're like, eh, that's, a, that's a good point, right? So, we need to labor to love, prove our love for one another. Real quick, Colossians chapter 3, what does it mean to love one another? It says, put on as God's chosen, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Again, there's nothing even to unpack pretty clear. It's what we do. We prove our love to one another. He also says, fear God. This is another way you do it. And this is the real, the chief one, right? Notice it doesn't say honor God. It says fear God. I love it in Isaiah chapter 8. I won't turn to it. I think we can put up on the screen. But in Isaiah 8, he says, you know what? There's going to be people who say, oh, that's a conspiracy and get really afraid. Or there's some plot. Get really afraid. And, And Isaiah says, you know what? Here, do yourself a favor. Don't give in to all of that, and instead, fear only the Lord. And when you fear only God, he is a sanctuary. Right? So all the, what about government? What about taxes? What about debt? What about people? What about morality and immorality? What about where the culture is going? What about internet pornography? And what about sex trafficking? And what about, those are all problems for us to invest the gospel into. But what we should not do is say, those things generate my fear. Now, we need to fear God, and he becomes a sanctuary in the midst of all of that chaos. And then we engage that with the goodness of Christ in the gospel. And then last, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Do I have to go back and explain Nero? No. No, I don't. And our temptation will be, no, 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 we don't have to. We don't have to. But don't be shocked when your teenager says they don't have to honor you. Because honor is honor. Again, like I said, it doesn't mean endorsement. It doesn't mean full agreement. But it certainly means respect. It certainly means a sense of uh, graciousness. It certainly means that I'm not this giant open critic every chance I get. Right? It means I spend a lot more time praying for than tearing down. Those are ways that we can honor. 
In fact, I close with 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is writing to a young pastor under the leadership of Nero, the emperor of Rome. He's dealing with a church in which there's a bunch of Jewish uh, teachers that are communicating that, again, there's a bunch of people in culture that aren't worth our time because they're this category and this category and this category. And, and, and again, they're more our enemies than our mission field. They're our battlefield, which is easy to do. There's this group and this group and this group. Pick your groups. You know your group in your head that you kind of go, those are the groups I mock. Those are the groups I, any chance I get, I say something negative about. And who would, God doesn't want to redeem MSNBC. Just let it go to hell. You know, like, like you know, whatever it is, right? Which I'm kind of okay with that at times. But um, so, right, my own sinful bias. So they have this problem where it's kind of like Jews only and those who are going to want to honor Old Testament Jewish law. Paul says to Peter, first of all, he says, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. People that are against you, people that are for you, people that you love, people that you know hate you and you need to love anyway, right? Make prayers for all of those people. He says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people, right? Not just the categories we deem worthy, not just the people that we like to affiliate with, not just the people that we enjoy, not just the people that agree with us, but all sorts of different people. He says... We want to make sure that we do this because God wants to save them and see them come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, Again, this isn't because these authorities or people are worthy. Rather, it's the evangelism strategy. It's the strategy. Pray for them. Be thankful for them. Be an encouragement to them. Be honorable and respectful in relationship to them, right? Live a peaceable and quiet life. Be a source for good. When you get involved, be a source for good. We were talking about just the other day, uh, the the dilemma of abortion. And, uh, you know, what's the best route in, in, in doing something? Is it to stand on the sidewalk with a picket and say this is wrong? Or is it better to stand on the sidewalk with an alternative? I want to care for you. I want to take care of you. I want to, whatever you need, I want to be there for you. Words are cheap. Actions, what they see, that's, that's effort. We need to be a source for good, a source for change. So they see our good works. And when God erupts in their life one day, they'll be like, oh yeah, that's what it really is. That's how it's really done. That's how it's really lived. That's how God is sincerely true. Let's pray together. Jesus, this was a bigger chunk this morning. A bigger, what I would consider to be a relevant chunk. And, 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 I, and I say it, say these words in a mirror at times, preaching to myself, feeling in the last year, year and a half, just at times a growing frustration and tenseness and fatigue 
And then just as a late realizing, oh, wait, this is what it means to not be in the driver's seat within a culture. And, and then learning to live in such a way that really believes you're in the driver's seat in this culture. And not feeling the need to be anything other than what you call this to be. I, I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would be generated by a conviction and by a life in you, Holy Spirit, that moves us forward and that you give us wisdom and we're not reactive and we are not at the mercy of our emotions, but that we would be at the mercy of your truth and the mercy of your plan and the mercy of your good news. And that that would be what we would proclaim, that we would not have a dozen stumbling blocks before anybody ever gets to you, the one true stumbling block but we would remove all the other stumbling blocks so that you would alone be the exclusive stumbling block. So give us wisdom, give us courage, give us perspective, give us boldness, give us joy, give us wherewithal. We thank you, Jesus, and love you in your name. Amen.